Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in 2 Samuel and the first part of 1 Kings. Which are our next two kings. We're going to talk about David, his rise, and his personal fall, and then Solomon, his rise, and then his personal fall. And I want to just say, hold on, hold on to your faith, because it gets a little discouraging when you watch great people like David, who has so much promise and is so loved by the Lord, actually commits adultery and then murder. And then Solomon, who was so loved by the Lord, and the Lord was with him and granted a marvelous request, and Solomon was such a marvelous king, and he dedicates the temple, and then he ends up, according to the text, with a thousand wives. And we're like, what is going on? And so it's a little difficult as you read these, and it can be a test of your faith to say, oh, great, what hope do I have of being saved when great people like David and Solomon fall? And so hold on to everything you know about the gospel, that if we have faith and we repent and we keep our covenants and we follow the Holy Ghost, that the Lord's going to be with us. We need to trust the Lord's ability to save us more than we trust our ability to be saved. Sometimes we focus on our limitations and we lose hope and we say, I don't know that I'm ever going to be perfect enough. And that's probably true, but we do need to focus on the Lord's ability to save us. And so as we go through David's fall and Solomon's fall, pay very close attention to what the Lord says, that I would have done anything for you, David. Nathan's going to come in after the fact and basically say, the Lord would have done anything that you needed him to do. And I would just kind of remind you that we're the only ones that can prevent God from saving us. Trust that as long as you hold the Savior's hand, as long as you walk with him, as long as you're willing to go where he is leading you, that there is no obstacle that he cannot overcome with you. The only person that can prevent your salvation is you. And David and Solomon do illustrate that, that they're the ones that pushed the Lord out. So hang on, because this can be a very discouraging week as we study the falls of two great kings of Israel. But there are some great lessons that we want to get into. So let's start by establishing David's kingdom. So the last time we talked, Saul has fallen, and David is in that process of rising and gaining the trust of the kingdom. So the first chapters before we get to David's fall with Bathsheba is kind of the establishment of his kingdom and David being recognized as king by all of the tribes of Israel, not just his own. So, Mike, walk us through the history of David establishing his kingdom. Bryce, I like that introduction. The first eight chapters or so describe in Second Samuel David's rise to power, and the second bit is kind of what you've been referring to. From about chapter 8, verse 19 to the 20th chapter, it's the sin of David and then the destruction of his family, how it just kind of devolves. And then the third part of Second Samuel, and that's chapters 21 through 24, is an appendix with a bunch of miscellaneous materials. So in the first chapter of Second Samuel, a message is brought that Saul's dead. 
and it's an Amalekite who informs David that he finished off Saul at his request. And if you remember, in 1 Samuel 31, Saul dies. The archers hit him, and then he's killed by his armor bearer. But in this chapter, 2 Samuel 1, we're told that an Amalekite tells David, hey, I finished him off. And so then, instead of being excited that his rival is dead, David mourns the loss of Saul and kills the Amalekite messenger who told him of Saul's death. And then in 2 Samuel 1, verses 17 through 27, David gives a funeral song honoring Saul. Now, a lot of people look at this as a story of a court history. You see, at every step, David is exonerated from anything having to do with the death of Saul or any of his rivals. He's always far from the scenes of murder or death, anything having to do with David having blood on his hands. And so not only is David sad that his rival is dead, but he kills the messenger who brings him this message. And it seems as if the author is trying to say that David is good. He's not killing his enemies. And so at this point, the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, he is made king over Israel, and David goes to Hebron, and he's made king over Judah. And we have this tension between the two groups. There's a lot in here, but if you read 2 Samuel 2, it talks about some of these details. There's a war between David and Saul's son, Ishbosheth, that continues through the third chapter. And in the third chapter, David's household increases. He gains more wives. And then we get to the story of Abner's death. You remember, Abner is the war chief of David's enemy, and he's killed in 2 Samuel 3, verses 6 through 39. And so at this point in the fourth chapter of 2 Samuel, Saul's son Ishbosheth is slain. And similar to the death of Saul, David is exonerated from any wrongdoing in the case of the death of his rival. So over and over again, this just keeps happening. And in chapter 5, we read that everyone goes to Hebron to celebrate David's authority as king. David's rivals are now dead. And we read in verse 4 that David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. And then it tells us that he reigned in Hebron for seven years and six months, but then he also reigned in Jerusalem for 30 and three years. So he reigns for 40 years, partially in Hebron at the beginning, but then in Jerusalem, because he's going to take Jerusalem. It says in verse 6 that he and his men went to it. It was a Jebusite city, and he took it. And I think one of the reasons why he takes this city is because it's central in the land. It's not in the south. It's not really in the north. And if you go visit Jerusalem, the topography really lends itself to a perfect defensible position because it's a city that's surrounded by valleys. And then when they build walls around the city, now it's really defensible. It was a really hard city to take hold of. And so this is the beginning of what the text is going to call the city of David. So he establishes his throne in Jerusalem in chapter 5. Also in chapter 5, Hiram of Tyre sends cedars to build David a house. And then we read about this conflict between the Philistines. The Philistines are going to come from the Pentapolis. We've talked about that before. The city-states, the five of them, in the plains of Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. And they spread out, and they start to attack the Israelites. And so David pushes them back. And then with him pushing the Philistines back in a military victory, he takes the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem in the sixth chapter. And this is the story that I think we tell a lot in the church don't steady the ark. This story has to do with the man who dies when he touches the ark of the covenant. Now, David is moving the ark, and it's on a new cart, and it's being driven by two men named Uzzah and Ahio. Now, we're going to make the assumption that they are not the priests that necessarily carry the ark. 
So in a hierarchical priesthood, like the church practices today, there is a hierarchy of assignments, and it is inappropriate to fulfill an assignment above you in the hierarchy. My bishop stops presiding the moment my stake president walks in because he's above my bishop in the hierarchy. And so it would be inappropriate for the bishop to step forward and assume that he was in charge when the stake president is there who has higher hierarchical authority than the bishop does. So we're going to make the assumption that Uzzah and Ahio are not the ones that have the keys and the authority to move the ark as in carrying it, simply driving the cart. So in verse 6 of chapter 6, when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled, and they struck him down. So why such a dramatic lesson here? And I think this is symbolic. We've got to see this as symbolism, and that is that it affects my spiritual life if I don't understand nor respect hierarchical priesthood. So Uzzah makes two mistakes, and I would just issue this as a warning for all of us. I think at one point or another, all of us are going to be faced with this temptation. The first mistake Uzzah makes is assuming that it would fall. This is the Ark of the Covenant. It represents God's presence. The Lord is not going to let it fall. And so some of us make the same mistake when we assume wrongdoing in one of the Lord's leaders. The Lord is not going to let us go astray. And now, that doesn't mean leaders don't make mistakes, but it shouldn't be my first assumption that you're leading us astray. I think the first assumption should be, maybe there's things I don't understand, I'm going to trust those who hold authority. But Uzzah makes that first mistake, and he assumes it's going to fall. And then the second mistake he makes is, it's his job to fix it. Now, bless all of our sweethearts, but we have a tendency to do that. Sometimes we look at another person's life. Sometimes we look at another family and we assume wrongdoing. We think something's going on in that family and that I'm the one to fix it. And we make the same two mistakes that Uzzah made. Number one, let's not assume that it's going to fall. Let's not assume wrongdoing. And number two, let's not assume that I'm the one that should fix it unless I really am the one to fix it. We operate in a hierarchical priesthood organization in this church, and we need to make sure that we understand what authority I have and what authority I don't have. It would be inappropriate for me to do something for which I do not have the authority. That's why this is a church-supported, family-based church, because what we're saying is there are limitations to the authority of the church, and that's what Uzzah teaches us. Uzzah raises the warning voice, don't let your spirit be struck down because you make those two same mistakes. You know, Bryce Brigham Young talked about this, where he said, let the kingdom alone, the Lord will steady the ark. Now, I want to just submit another way to read this. What if this is once again a court history, and what if this is a scribal insertion, meaning that a scribe is trying to describe who does and doesn't have the authority to touch the sacred things of God? 
We talked about this a little bit earlier in the Torah, but there's this tension between who can and can't offer sacrifices, who is and is not authorized to come to sacred things. And then we see some of this tension even laid out in the text. I mean, if you look in 2 Samuel chapter 6, this is so interesting to me. David comes in and he's wearing the linen ephod. He's acting as the high priest and he's dancing before the Lord. That's verse 14. But in verse 13, it says that he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. Now, I don't know the whole story, but we read earlier that Saul got in trouble for doing this. Saul was a king and he offered sacrifice. Apparently that was bad. David's doing it here and it seems to be okay. Or is it? You see, as he's coming in, Michal, his wife, now he gets her back. When when the kingdom is rising in the fifth chapter, he is able actually to get her back. It's kind of a complicated story, but Saul gives his wife away to another fellow. David gets her back. And this is another reason why I think this is a court history, because she comes up and she criticizes him. Look what she says. It says in verse 20 that she came out to meet David and she said, how glorious was the king of Israel today who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. There's this tension and it's kind of difficult in the King James, but essentially she's criticizing him for his behavior as he's coming in with the procession to establish the ark. And so the author of the text leaves this little breadcrumb in the last verse of chapter six. And this is what it says. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. To me, this is the scribe or whoever put this together telling us that there's a breach between these two. And there will be no possibility of uniting the houses of David and Saul through a child of David and Michal. In other words, Saul's seed will never reign over the house of Israel. I mean, that's kind of just a really an obscure detail to put in here. We don't have the whole story, but we know that he's sacrificing. We know that Saul wasn't allowed. And then he's wearing the ephod and he's dancing before the Lord and establishing the ark on the threshing floor. To me, That's kind of sitting in the position of Nephi. Remember Nephi, who was the prophet, priest, and king? He acted as the high priest, but he was also a king. And so there's breadcrumbs of that in this text. Now, this threshing floor that's mentioned in verse 6, I think this is important. I think this is the Eben Shatiyah, or the foundation stone. I think this relates to Helaman 5.12, Christ being the sure foundation. Or it could be related to the rock of revelation, the stone, or the foundation stone in the Holy of Holies. This stone is referred to in many sources. For example, according to tradition, the Zohar says this, quote, The world was not created until God took a stone called the Eben Shatiyah, and threw it into the depths where it was fixed from above to below, and from it the world expanded. It is the center point of the world, and on this spot stood the Holy of Holies. The Talmud also considers this Evanshatiya to be the rock from which the world was created, being the first part of the earth to come into existence. It goes on to claim that this rock is where God gathered the earth that was formed into Adam. In math, when you do graphs, and you take the X and Y axis, that point in the middle, that's your origin point. I want to submit this idea that that's the threshing floor. The threshing floor is where X meets Y, and that piece of ground or that rock is going to be the foundation stone, the rock underneath the Holy of Holies. And Helaman 5.12 invites us to connect that to Jesus. We're going to see the threshing floor again at the end of 2 Samuel in chapter 24. My take on that 
is chapters 21 through 24 at the end of 2 Samuel is an appendix with a bunch of miscellaneous things. I read 2 Samuel 24 at the end is actually part of this story. And so we'll try to explain that. But all of this is going on. There's tension between David and his wife. He's establishing the ark. He has the city and he's wearing the linen ephod. He's acting as the high priest. So then we get to chapter seven. Seven, every once in a while, we get to see into the heart of a prophet or in this case, a king. And it's a beautiful little glimpse. Alma chapter 29 is a beautiful chapter where we get to see into the heart of Alma. And what we see is beautiful. In chapter 7, we begin to see what is in the heart of David. Now, David is going to commit murder. He is going to commit adultery. But before all of that happens, we get to see what is in the heart of David. And what bothers him is that he dwells in a house of cedar, and the ark of God dwells within curtains. That doesn't sit well with him. Do you see what's in the heart of David? David wants to build a temple for the Lord. Now, the Lord's going to get into, I haven't asked you to, and we don't do this until I ask. So no, we're not going to build the temple. David will never build the temple. And the Lord's going to tell him that Solomon, from the very beginning, it's clear that Solomon is going to build the temple. He tells David that. But what I love about chapter 7 is you get to see into David's heart, and he loves the Lord, which is going to make the tragedy with Bathsheba all the worse. Yeah. There's a big prophecy in chapter 7 that I want to highlight. It's going to have echoes throughout the narrative of Kings, and it's going to be a big problem, but it doesn't need to be a big problem. So this is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, the prophecy of Nathan. When thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. That statement right there, I will be his father and he shall be my son. In the ancient Near East, when the king sat on the throne, he became, and I'm using air quotes, he became the son of the God. And so when David sat on the throne, he quote, became God's son. Why? He represented God to the people. So this set of verses is talking about a couple things. It's talking about setting up David's seed after him. That's verse 12. It's talking about establishing his house. And by the way, when you establish someone's house, you're talking about their family, but you're also talking, verse 13, about their throne. And the house of the cedars of Lebanon is going to be a term that's used for the temple of God, but the house of the cedars of Lebanon is also the house of David. And they're sometimes used synonymously. Then you go to verse 15, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And then here's the key verse, verse 16 of chapter seven, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to this vision, so did Nathan speak to David. That verse, verse 16 is a big deal. It's the Davidic dynasty promise. A couple places you want to mark in your scriptures if you want to write these down are 1 Kings 11, 13, 2 Kings 8, 19, and 2 Kings 19, 34. This Davidic dynasty promise is also going to pop up again when Hezekiah takes his stand against the Assyrians. We'll see this when we get to Isaiah. Big picture. Here's what's going on. Nathan issues a promise. David, 
Because your heart is good, your house will always reign forever. So let me interject. David does fall in his personal life with Bathsheba, but that isn't necessarily the kingdom of David. So we need to separate the kingdom of David from his personal actions as the man David. Absolutely. And his kingdom will continue. The house of David will reign in Judah. But part of the problem, I think, when Lehi's around, now it doesn't say this in the Book of Mormon, Bryce, but I kind of think this is what's going on. When Lehi stands up and says, hey guys, if we don't repent, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. I think some of the people that lived in Jerusalem in 600 BC, they knew, first of all, it was in their memory, Hezekiah stood against the Assyrians and Jerusalem was safe. And they also knew the Davidic promise. That was an attack on David and his legacy. So you can see why the Jews were offended at Lehi's prophecy. Uh, Yeah, I think that's what's going on. And the house of David does cease, at least in Jerusalem. You see at 586 Zedekiah, and it says his sons are slain. But the Book of Mormon kind of pulls on this thread because we hear about a guy named Mulek, and he comes to the Americas. And we're not going to get into that in this podcast, but many people struggle with this. In fact, one biblical scholar named James Kugel, who spoke of this oracle in chapter 7, said, What Nathan's oracle essentially promised was that a single dynasty, the house of David, would rule over Israel forever. Forever is a long time, and things didn't turn out that way. But as we shall see, the house of David did rule in Judah for some four centuries, certainly an impressive record. The problem with this prophecy is that it's been reinterpreted over the course of Israelite history multiple times. My interpretation of verse 16, I think, is a pretty safe one because I believe in Jesus. And so I'm going to take verse 16 and say, David's house and kingdom will be established forever because Jesus, as a descendant of David, his kingdom has been established and Jesus is also the son of God. Now, the New Testament even goes on to speculate, I think this is what Matthew's trying to do at the beginning of his record, that had the kingdom of David not ceased with the Babylonian captivity, had that continued, it would have fallen on Jesus of Nazareth to be the king on David's throne, that Jesus would have been the natural king of Israel had the kingdom continued. That's what Matthew's trying to establish at the beginning of his gospel, that this literally is the rightful king of Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Verse 14 ties right back into Jesus. I will be his father and he shall be my son. David's kingdom was established, but it fell. But through Jesus, verse 16 carries on. Now, David wants to build a house. It doesn't say this in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, but 1 Chronicles 22 verse 8 tells us that David is not to build the temple because he, quote, shed blood abundantly, but that Solomon will build the temple. So if you've ever heard the teaching that David can't build the temple because he's a man of blood, you're not going to find that in 2 Samuel 7, but you'll find it in the Chronicles reference. So that's the establishment of his kingdom. So in 2 Samuel 8, this chapter, chapter 8, emphasizes David's military expansion. David smites the Philistines, and he takes out the leader of Moab. And then we get to verse 15. David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto his people. That verse tells us, because he's executing judgment or fairness or equity, that he is, at least in this chapter, the embodiment of the kind of king that God wants to have. So then in the ninth chapter, 
David shows chesed to Jonathan's son, and his name in English is Mephibosheth. Have fun pronouncing that. But here's the idea. David shows love or kindness to him in this chapter, and David is a merciful kind of person. The 10th chapter, there's this war between the Israelites and the Ammonites, and because of this war, we now have chapter 11. And the very first verse tells us that it came to pass when the year was expired at the time when kings went forth to battle, David sent Joab, remember he's the military leader of the house of David, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon, and they besieged Rabbah, and then the author says, and this is important, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. That's the setup. So the 11th chapter of of 2 Samuel is very difficult. David's supposed to be, like verse 1 said, out fighting in the war, but he's not. And then it's at night, he's on the roof of his house, and he sees this beautiful woman. Her name is Bathsheba in verse 3, and she's bathing. And he desires her, and so he sends for her. Verse 4 says he lay with her, and then verse 5 tells us that she's with child. And at this point, David writes a letter to his general, Joab, and he says, send me the the man, the husband of this woman. His name is Uriah the Hittite. So Joab does. Uriah comes to him. And then David says, tell me about the war. And, And he does. And then he says, why don't you go home and spend the night with your wife? And he doesn't. It says in verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants and went not down to his house. And so when it was told to David, so the servants of the king are telling him, hey, he didn't go lay with his wife. He calls him back a second time. And he says, why didn't you? And there's something going on with the honor and shame culture of the ancient Near East here because Uriah calls him out. Look in verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Now, what's interesting to this verse is verse 11 tells us that Uriah is calling him out. We need to note that he is also not of Israel. He's a Hittite. He's not even one of them. And he's calling David out as an outsider. And so David says, well, verse 12, tarry here today also and tomorrow I'll let thee depart. And then he gets him drunk. In verse 13, David invites him to drink, hoping he'll then go home. But even then, Uriah does not go down to his house. He won't do it. He won't do it. So David's trying to cover it up. You see, it'd be really difficult to hide this if you've been at battle for a couple years and you come home and you have a one-year-old child. And so David knows if he can get Uriah to sleep with his wife, then we're going to be all fine. And But it doesn't happen. Uriah's calling him out. Now, my take on Uriah is... I think Uriah knows what David's up to. There's an interesting book on this called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. And in this book, there's a whole bit on honor and shame culture in the Old Testament. And these authors make this point, and I think they're dead on here, is that everybody knows what's going on. David knows what's going on, Uriah knows what's going on, and the servants know what's going on. And if Uriah will just play along with the game, everything will be fine. But Uriah is calling David out. He's basically begging David to admit his fault, and David won't do it. So there's a lot of pride in here in this discourse. But David sends Uriah back to Joab with a letter, and in the letter, he tells Joab, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle, and then pull back your guys. And that way, Uriah will die in battle. 
And so it happens. Uriah delivers the message to Joab. I guess he didn't read the letter. Joab reads it. Joab follows the instructions. Uriah dies. Verse 26 says, when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was finished, David sent and fetched her to his house and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing David did displeased the Lord. And so that's the general picture of the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel. And so how do I teach this? Like, what can we learn from this, Bryce? I think this is a marvelous discussion to have with teenagers or young marrieds or anyone of any age to talk about the lines of defense that we can put in place to prevent us from falling to the laws of chastity. What are the lines of defense that could have kept David safe? What do we learn from David's mistake that I can do in my life to prevent a similar error? This is difficult for me because I love David. I know that Doctrine and Covenants section 132 verse 39 says that David has fallen from his exaltation. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means that David will never be in the celestial kingdom or he fell and then he's got to work his way back up. I don't know. All I know is that as I have studied the scriptures, I have never seen a more repentant person than David. He is the model of repentance in the Psalms. I really hope to see David in the celestial kingdom because of the influence he has had on me and my soul and the pleadings of his heart for God to forgive him. But we're going to do this in the spirit of Mormon 931, where Moroni says, Condemn me not because of mine imperfections, neither my father because of his imperfections, neither them who have written before, but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections. Why? That ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. That's the spirit of this chapter. I think that's the spirit of Joseph losing the manuscript. It's the spirit of Peter denying Jesus. We need to remember that when we study the fall of a great person, that we're not to condemn them and criticize them as much as we are to learn from them that we can be more wise than they have been. So, number one, I would list that very first verse, be where you should be. David would not have fallen. David would not have had this problem if he was where he should have been. It's very interesting, Mike, that Alma says to his son Coriantin, one of the things you did wrong is you forsook the ministry and you went over into the land of Siren. In other words, you went where you should not have gone. You weren't where you were supposed to be. And I think one of the major lines of defense for all of us, especially teenagers, is to be where you should be when you should be there. That's why curfews are important. You're less likely to fall into sin if you are where you should be when you should be there. I love the Savior's gentle rebuke of his mother, Mary, who spent three days looking for him. I wonder if he was saying, when he says, how is it that ye sought me? I wonder if he was saying, where did you look for me? Where did you think I would be? Did you go to the skateboard park? Did you go to the arcade? Where did you think I would be? Because I'm going to be about my father's business. And wouldn't it be wonderful, all you young people listening, if you could send that message to your parents? You may not know where I'm at, but you could trust that I will be doing what I should be doing. 
I will be about my father's business. So David tarries at Jerusalem. That's mistake number one. Now, let me set up mistake number two, taking you back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, I'd like to focus on the verbs where Eve partakes of the fruit. Now, in no way do I want to associate this with the individual Eve. I think she symbolizes all of this in this moment. This is how sin gets into us. So, notice the verbs here. In Moses chapter 4, verse 12, the first verb is that she saw. Sin is in our eyes or in our ears. We see or we hear. Now, we ought to do everything we can to prevent sin from going into our eyes. We ought to not be on the pages of the internet where I'm going to see something I shouldn't. I ought not to go to a movie where I'm going to hear something that I shouldn't hear. So do all that we can to prevent sin from being in our eyes. But notice where it goes next. After she saw the fruit, it became pleasant. Now, where do things become pleasant? It's now in her thoughts. It's in her head. She's thinking about it. It went from eyes to head. And then the next verb is, she desired. So where do we desire? It's in our heart. Sin has gone from our eyes to our head to our heart. And now we desire sin. Now what's the next verb? She took. Now sin is in her hands. Or you could say it's in our feet. Or maybe it's in our finger and we're clicking. We're grabbing and taking. And notice that the very next one is, she partook. Now she has committed the sin. And following that up, no one wants to sin alone, and so she gave. And David's going to follow that same procedure. Now watch him go through every single one of those. Starting in verse 2, it came to pass in the evening that David was walking on his roof and he saw. Now, he didn't know she would be there. There's an innocence to this. This is the easiest one to turn away from. He saw a woman washing herself. Sin is in his eyes. But then the verse says, the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Notice the difference in those verbs, see and look upon. There's an intent there, not a quick glance, oh, I saw something I shouldn't have and looked away. There's an intentional looking. Sin is going from his eyes into his head. In the very next verse, he's inquiring about the woman. He's asking about her. And when he asks about her, he finds out that she's married. But does that stop him from asking? Because sin has gone from his eyes to his head, and now it's in his heart. So in the very next verse, he sent messengers and he took her and lie with her. So sin was in his hands and then he committed transgression. And now that she gets pregnant, he wants to hide his sin. And so then there's that final stage of trying to hide his sin by inviting Uriah, her husband, to come home and hopefully go home and be with his wife. David checked every single one of those boxes. He let sin go from his eyes, to his thoughts, to his desires, to his actions, and then he committed transgression, and then he tried to hide or share. We sometimes do both of those. 
So I would say the line of defense here and the discussion I, I would encourage you to have, especially with young people, is the easiest of those steps to control is when sin is in our eyes. Once it gets into my thoughts, it's harder to keep it out of my heart. I can get it out of my heart, but it's harder to get it out of my heart than to keep it out of my mind. The real battle for control is control over what goes in my mind. Once it's in my mind, it's very hard to keep it out of my heart. So teach your children, teach your students, teach young people of this church that the victory is to not let it go from my eyes to my head. If it does, the next victory, which is much more difficult, and that is to get it out of my heart. If, I, if it gets into my head, it gets into my heart very quickly. Now, we have a tendency to talk about not letting it in your hands, but the real key to not letting it into your hands is to never let it into your head. So line of defense number two, I would suggest is keep it out of your head. Keep it out of your heart. And at least keep it out of your hands and don't commit the sin. Yeah, excellent. Now, chapter 12 is the aftermath. After David has killed Uriah, I think David thinks everything's fine. I think he's thinking, you know what? I gave him a chance. He didn't do what I wanted him to do. And he, he may have put it out of his mind. He may feel guilty. I don't know. But what we do know is the prophet Nathan sets up David. You remember, in the ancient Near East, kings had to deal with judicial matters. Often they would act as judges. So Nathan pitches a legal case to David. And the legal case is essentially this. There's two guys. One's rich and one's poor. That's verse one. The rich guy had a lot of flocks and herds. The poor guy had nothing but one little ewe lamb. And the rich part of his family slept in his bed, just like a child to him. And those of you who have very dear pets know exactly what that's like. This little ewe lamb was part of the family. He says at the very end of three was unto him as a daughter. It's kind of a sad story because what does the rich guy do? The traveler comes and visits the rich guy and he wants to throw a feast. But instead of taking from one of his many sheep, I don't want to give up one of my sheep. So he goes over and he takes the little ewe lamb from the poor guy, steals it away from him, offers that as a feast for his friend. Now, that's the legal case. And when Nathan pitches it to David, David is enraged. Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he says, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. And then comes four of probably the most stinging words in text. Nathan says to David, thou art the man. That's what you did, David. You had so many blessings and God was with you. And listen to this rebuke that Nathan makes. He says, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house. I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. 
the Lord's going to use that in a powerful way. He's going to talk about the fact that he has the key of David, both in Revelation as well as in Isaiah. He's going to describe Jesus as having the key of David. And the key of David is the servant who allowed you to get in to see the king. And in both Revelation and Isaiah 22, it's going to tell us what Jesus did with that key. He says, I have set before thee an open door, and no man shutteth. In other words, what Nathan is trying to say to David is, the Lord would have removed any obstacle to your salvation. If you had partnered with the Lord, he would have led you to salvation. Wherefore, verse 9, hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Like I said earlier, the only person that can prevent you from being saved is you. It is your unwillingness to follow Christ. That's the issue here. Jesus is saying, I would have done anything, David. I would have removed every obstacle. I will set before thee an open door. If you hold my hand and make covenants and keep the commandments and repent when you make mistakes— I can get you to the celestial kingdom, but you have pushed away. And that's kind of the stinging message here. And then the consequence. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Nathan gave. This prophetic declaration, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite wife. Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them to thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. For thou did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So the rest of Second Samuel from this chapter on to the end of chapter 20 is the chaos that ensues in David's family because of his example. And it's a really rough story. I mean, it's the implosion of David's family. First of all, verse 18 of 2 Samuel 12 tells us that the child dies, the child that was from this union of David and Bathsheba. But then she has another child. If you go to verse 24 and 25, it says that she has this child that they're going to call Jedidiah. Now that child is going to be Solomon. Is this the throne name? Is Solomon the throne name of this child? We see this also with David. David has a couple of names. And so there's a lot of interesting discussion on this. And so we kind of put some of this in the show notes if that interests you, if you want to pull on that thread. But Solomon is going to be this child that will grow up and take the throne. But before he does, we get to chapter 13. The 13th chapter of 2 Samuel talks about the continuation of that curse that's given by the prophet. Essentially, what we have here is we have a brother and a sister who are children of David, but they come from different mothers. We have Amnon, he's the son, and he desires his half-sister Tamar. Remember, David is what's in common between these two. And so what he does is he feigns illness, and she brings him some food, and he tries to lie with her. This is what the text says, that he fell sick for his sister Tamar. That's verse 2 of chapter 13. It says that he's a very subtle man, and his friend says, when she brings you food, Try to lay with her. And so he does. And her response, verse 12, no, do not do this folly. This is not right. And so he takes her by force. And after he takes her by force, it says that he no longer loved her. Now, that that word ahab for love, that word, I mean, has a lot of ambiguity here. 
lust is not love. I'm just going to come out and say that. But the author's point is that he desired her. Now, that word for love can also be desire. So he desired her, but after he lay with her, he didn't want anything to do with her. And verse 21 tells us, when David heard these things, he was very wroth. But this is the beginning of the implosion of the family. You see, Tamar has a brother, and this brother's name is Absalom, and he's the son of David and Makkah. He is Tamar's full brother, and he's going to take vengeance upon Amnon. He's going to kill Amnon. And so at the end of the 13th chapter, he murders him for the rape of his sister. And because of this, there's this tension in the family because we have a, a dead brother, the, the one that raped the sister, and Absalom, this wonderful son, 2 Samuel 14, 25 and 26 tells us that in all Israel, there was none so much to be praised as Absalom for his beauty. And then it talks about the weight of his hair, that it's 200 shekels. And that's 30 times the thickness and 30 times the weight of an average human hair. And I think this is Judaic hyperbole. But the point is, now he's been ostracized by the family because he's taken vengeance. But in his defense, he says, well, you know what? You can't treat my sister this way. And in the midst of this, in the 14th chapter, we have Joab who sends this wise woman of Tekoa to pitch a legal case to David. And it's very similar to the story that Nathan uses. When Nathan pitches a legal case to David, but it's actually David's own story, and essentially what the case is going to do is convict David. You see, David's mad at Absalom. Absalom killed his son. And so this case, this legal case that this woman pitches to him is convicting David of his own guilt. And so David says, you know what? He can come home. So he does. He allows his son to come home. But what's interesting is it seems like he allows him to come home, but he hasn't quite forgiven him. You see, time goes by and he doesn't even speak to him. And so Absalom's desperate. He wants an audience with his father. But verse 28 says that he was there two full years and his father doesn't even talk to him. And so to get his father's attention, he tries to get Joab, the military leader of David, to get an audience with the king. And Joab won't listen to him. And so Absalom sets Joab's field on fire to get his attention. And Joab comes to him and says, what do you want? He says, I want to talk to my dad. And so he does. He finally, at the end of chapter 14, gets an audience with his father. And it says at the end of verse 33 that the king kissed Absalom. So what we think we have here at the end of 14 is reconciliation. We think we have peace, but then it gets worse. Absalom rebels against his father, and then he goes around to different settlements and he tries to muster political support. This is in chapter 15 in the first six verses. And then he goes to Hebron, where David was first proclaimed king, and he has his own men proclaim him king in verse 10. They say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And it says that the conspiracy gains strength, that's verse 12. And David learns of the plans of Absalom in the next couple of verses, verse 13 and 14. And because of this, he flees Jerusalem, that's verse 16. He leaves 10 of his concubines there to mine the palace at Jerusalem. And because of this, Zadok, who's the high priest, we think, he gets the ark and he's ready to leave the city. David seems to think that Absalom's going to lay siege to the city, but he turns and he tells Zadok to go back, take the ark back. I'm going to leave. And the image that we have is David leaving with his head covered and he's barefoot and he's going east through the Valley of Kidron, and he's ascending up the Mount of Olives. And as I read the story, I can't help but think of 
the Savior, leaving the city, going up to the Mount of Olives to pay for our sins. Now, I know David isn't Jesus, but it's just this type of sadness. In fact, that's even what the Valley Kidron means. It means darkness or heaviness or sadness. And so David is in this sad condition. Verse 30 says that he went barefoot with his head covered, and Absalom is returning to the city, and he's taking it. Verse 37 says that Absalom came into Jerusalem. So that's the end of the 15th chapter. The 16th chapter is really difficult, but this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Nathan gave. A man by the name of Shimei curses David to his face in chapter 16, 5 through 13. And in verse 20 through 22, Absalom sleeps with the concubines of David. Now, from the perspective of the ancient Near East, when someone laid claim to the throne, they would take the queen. Think of chess. If you take the queen, you're kind of laying claim to the other armies of the king. Well, by him sleeping with David's concubines, Absalom is staking out his claim for the throne. And so this is the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy that in front of all of Israel, another person will take your wives. And that happens. If you read verse 22 of chapter 16, it says, So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house, and Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. And so that is the conclusion of the 16th chapter. Absalom is laying claim to the throne. David's fled the city. The ark stays in Jerusalem. But this is outright civil war. In the 18th chapter of 2 Samuel, there's war between the forces of David and Absalom. And and David says to his general Joab, he says in verse 5, to deal gently with Absalom. In other words, stop the war, end their forces, but don't hurt my son. And there's a battle between Absalom and David's forces, and the wood, it says in verse 8, devoured more people than the sword. It seems to be that they're in a place where there's trees, and it seems to be causing problems. And we read in verse 10 that Absalom's mule went under a thick bow of an oak, and it caught his hair. And so the image we have here, and we have it in the slides, is Absalom is no longer on his mount, but he's kind of hanging in the oak tree. And with this, Joab comes and puts three darts in his heart in the 14th verse. But then we read in verse 15 that some armor bearers come and slay him, that they they kill him. It's kind of hinting that Joab didn't finish him off. But this is not what David wanted. When David hears that Absalom is slain, this is what we read. Go to verse 33 of chapter 18. The king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God that I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. It just drips of tragedy when David learns that his son has been slain. It brings out the emotion of the experience. And I think David, in seeing this, is reminded of the curse and reminded of his actions, that his actions played a role in the lives of his family. It's very tragic. Mike, I wonder if the Book of Mormon authors, I wonder if Jacob in the Book of Mormon had this story in mind and it weighed heavily on him so that when he saw his people beginning to commit fornication and adultery, Knowing that David's family will implode because of his example, I wonder if that's what led Jacob to say this. At the end of Jacob chapter 2, he said, Behold, you have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites, our brethren. Ye have broken the hearts of your tender wives and lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them. 
and the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you. And because of the strictness of the word of God, which cometh down against you, many hearts died pierced with deep wounds. And then later in chapter 3, he's going to say, Wherefore, ye shall remember your children, how that ye have grieved their hearts because of the example that ye have set before them. And also remember that ye may, because of your filthiness, bring your children unto destruction, and their sins be heaped upon your heads at the last day. And now I, Jacob, spake many more things unto the people of Nephi, warning them against fornication and lasciviousness and every kind of sin, telling them the awful consequences of them. I think one of the reasons we need to teach lines of defense is because of the awful consequences of those types of sins. David's family stands as a testament of all of the damage that can be done because of immoral transgressions. Now, that being said, I remind you that repentance is available and that Jesus can cleanse sin and that when we turn from sin, it can completely go away. If any of you have struggled with immoral transgressions, please know that the Lord is capable of cleansing that transgression. I would use Alma as an example. Alma, who fell into numerous transgressions, and I can only expect that immoral transgressions were part of that, repented and was never crippled by that again. He was able to teach his children without being crippled by his past. So yes, there is repentance, and repentance is available. But I think David's story raises the warning voice about the awful consequences that come into our homes and upon our children because of lasciviousness and fornication. And so I wonder if we just need to remember the awful consequences on families when there is transgression. And that's what David's family stands to teach us. So remember those lines of defense and help those who are vulnerable be protected. Yeah. Powerful message. Now, there's a lot of details in chapter 19 and 20. We put those in the show notes, but I want to get to the appendix. So if you go to the appendix or the third part of 2 Samuel, it's chapters 21 through 24. These last four chapters are full of diverse materials, and they differ in character and theological outlook and language from the main body of the book. A lot of people think that this stuff in these chapters was added later, And they're arranged in a chiastic order. It goes like this. Part A is a narrative about a national calamity. B is a short account of heroic feats. And then C is a poem. And then C prime is another poem. And then B prime is short accounts of heroic feats with a list of David's heroes. And then finally, A prime is a narrative about a national calamity. So it begins and ends in a national calamity. And the calamity in chapter 21 is a famine. And then we also have this notion of vengeance versus charity. There was a famine during the reign of David, year after year for three years. David inquires the Lord, and the Lord tells him, it's because of the blood guilt of Saul and his house, for he put some of the Gibeonites to death. That's verse 1 of chapter 21. Now, the act of Saul, this act that's referred to, is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. So what we take out of this, verse 1, is it's referring to something that's nowhere else in the Bible. So a lot of people look at this and say, well, this is evidence of the fragmentary nature of the text. We're just missing stuff. So 
The first part of the narrative tells of the Gibeonites' revenge for this act that we don't know what happened. Uh, the revenge for the act of Saul's violation of the oath, promising them preservation of life. And the calamity in chapter 21 is a famine. Then from chapter 21, verse 15 to verse 22, we have heroic feats, heroic feats of people that worked with David. The 22nd chapter, if you do a close reading of it, really kind of reads like the Psalms, this song of thanksgiving. And then the 23rd chapter, Verses 1 through 7, there's more psalms or more of what what are called the last words of David. And then chapter 23, verses 8 through 39 are more heroes that are listed. And one of the most painful verses is the last one in verse 39. Listed among David's heroes is Uriah the Hittite. Yeah. Ouch. Now, the 24th chapter is another national calamity. There's three events in this chapter. There's a census. David's going to take a census. There's a plague. And then the staying of the plague or the stopping of the plague is David's purchase of the threshing floor. Now, to count out or to take a census is prohibited in the law. God says that the kings are not to do this. And verse 1 of chapter 24 talks about David numbering Israel and Judah. And the purpose is so that he can wage war. That is looked at negatively in the text. And so because he takes a census, a plague ensues. And because of the plague, he's given this message. Go to verse 15. The Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from morning, even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. But David wants to stay the plague. And so it says in verse 16 that the Lord was sorry he stops the plague. And the reason why he does is because David says he has sinned, he saw an angel, and he goes to purchase the threshing floor of Aruna. And that's a pun on the word for ark. And so he goes to purchase the threshing floor of Aruna, and that's in verses 19 to the end of the chapter. And the idea is, is that he purchases the threshing floor for 50 shekels, that's verse 24, and he builds an altar to the Lord, verse 25, and he offers burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. And so the building of the altar, which is going to be the beginnings of the temple, starts in this chapter. This is the very last bit of 2 Samuel. And it seems to be a message that the Lord is staying the plague as David does what he can to establish sacred space. Now we're going to go into 1 Kings. Which really should be 3 Kings. It would be nice if they numbered this by Kings so that 1 Samuel, which is the story of the first king, Saul, were actually 1 Kings, and David, who is the second king, would be 2 Kings. So here we are in 1 Kings, and we're up to the third king, Solomon. So I know it gets confusing. But 1 Samuel is the first king, Saul. 2 Samuel is basically the second king, David. And 1 Kings is actually the third king, Solomon. And then we go really quickly into the kings after that. Kings is essentially the narrative of the house of Israel splitting. You see, after Solomon, the kingdom splits between north and south. And that's going to happen right around 921 B.C., But that's not going to be covered in this podcast. This podcast, we're just going to talk about, like Bryce said, the third king. That's going to be Solomon. The first part of 1 Kings is going to cover David's death, and there's going to be some internal strife as to who should have the throne. If you go to verse 3 of chapter 3, it says that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David. 
only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. There's this tension in Kings. Are we allowed to sacrifice in high places or not? We put it in the show notes, all these breadcrumbs that show that the Deuteronomistic historian is writing Kings. And so you can see all those clues that show that this is probably from the same author. And because of that, there's that tension. Kings is going to want only sacrifice happening in Jerusalem. But the positive thing we read here is in verse five. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And he says, I'll give you whatever you ask. And Solomon basically says, I want to have an understanding heart. How can I possibly judge your people? That's verse 9. And in verses 11 through 13, the Lord says to Solomon, I'm going to bless you with this because you have asked for this wonderful thing, a quote, wise and understanding heart. And because that's the only thing you asked for and didn't ask for riches or glory, you didn't make prideful requests, I'm not only going to grant your request, but I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. I'm going to be bounteous in abundant blessings in your life. Now, Solomon is a marvelous man, and he's very deserving to be king. And I love Solomon's response here. He says in verse 7, I am but a lad. I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. This man is humble. I don't know that I'm capable of being king. So if you'll help me, Lord, then you and I together can do this. And that's when the Lord pours out abundant blessings upon him. Because you didn't ask for prideful things. You don't want your own greatness. You don't want your own glory, but want the glory of Israel. I'm going to give you the glory that you're not seeking. And that's a beautiful lesson there. And the Lord's willing to give us abundant blessings. Now, I know you all know this story, but you just, this is such a cool story to prove the brilliance of Solomon. So these two women come to Solomon. They're both harlots. They both gave birth within days of each other. One of the women laid on her child in the middle of the night and suffocated it and killed it. And then in the middle of the night, she swaps babies. So the other woman wakes up and says, this isn't my child. This is not my child. I know my child. The real mom was like, oh, you took my baby. And the lady who's the not real mom is like, no, it's my baby. No, it's my baby. And so they take the matter to the king to have him judge. So tell me what you would do. I know you know the story, but pretend you didn't. Two women alone in the house, one live baby, both women claim that it's theirs. Now, this is way before DNA tests. There's no way you can pull the fathers in. There's no eyewitnesses. You've got the testimony of two women, both of whom claim that they are the living child's mother. Now, this really is a brilliant moment for Solomon. He calls for a sword and says, cut the baby in half. And one woman steps forward and says, no, 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 don't cut the baby in half. She can have the baby. And the other woman says, yeah, that's a great idea. Cut the baby in half. And Solomon says, don't cut the baby in half. Give it to her. There's your mother. That's the real mom. Now, that's just brilliant example of Solomon's wisdom. That is how wise this man is, and we really do stand in awe of his brilliance. But let me jump to the end. We'll, we'll jump to chapter 11, because I think one of the great lessons we need to learn from Solomon is that our strengths can often be our downfall. That's the message that King Solomon teaches. And there was a marvelous article in the Enzyme based on a Dallin H. Oaks talk, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to read it, where Elder Oaks talks about our strengths can become our downfall, and he gives numerous examples. 
But I really do think this is something we should ponder. If you want to know how Satan is going to try and come after you, look at your strength. If your strength is an abundance of wisdom and knowledge, if you're very intelligent, I'll bet you anything that's how Satan's coming after you. Your brilliance can often lead to pride and thinking you're better than other people. And Solomon's that way. Because of his sheer brilliance, it makes him very well known throughout all the neighboring kingdoms. And they come seeking his wisdom, and they bring gifts. And the Queen of Sheba is an example of that. She comes bringing major gifts to Solomon, seeking his counsel. So Solomon's brilliance makes him well-known and very wealthy. And in the end, that will be his undoing. If you'll turn to chapter 11, which is the last of our Come, Follow Me chapters here, the sad ending of King Solomon is that, verse 1, King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. And you have to see the connection here that because of his wisdom, people seek him from all of those nations. They come in to see Solomon's wisdom, and now he's connected to them. And then we get in verse 2, Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their God. Solomon clave unto these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. You know, if that's literal, which I don't know if it is, but if it is, that's going to require a big tax bill that the people are going to have to pay just to maintain his household, which is really the precursor to the division, is taxation. Yeah. And then the tragedy here is at the end of verse 3, his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. This is a sad ending to a wonderful man who gave us some incredible scriptures in the Proverbs, brilliant insights into human behavior, brilliant insights into how to be a better person. But the sad tragedy is that his brilliance actually becomes his weakness. It's another example of when they are learned, they think they are wise and they hearken not unto the counsels of God. So I think this week, as you ponder Solomon's life, would you take some time and ponder the strengths you have, the strength that God has given you, and how might that strength become a weakness? You can see the author of Kings trying to figure out why the temple was destroyed, writing their history, showing you these three great kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, that had all the potential in the world. But like section 121 says, when they get a little bit of authority, they kind of think that they're the one in charge and that they're wise. And I think that's one of the things that's drawing out. But I think we're going to end with chapter eight, the first Israelite temple. Finally, the third king over Israel, Solomon, builds the temple. 
and this building will stand until it's destroyed by the Babylonians quite some time later, 400 years later, essentially. So this temple is going to be here for a long time. And it becomes the pattern of the temple that the Nephites take to America and build their temples following that same pattern. So not only does this temple last for 400 years, but the legacy of this temple lasts throughout the entire Nephite history. It was to a temple patterned after Solomon's that Jesus appears in 3rd Nephi chapter 11 and comes to the Nephites. Yeah. So chapter 6 and 7 get into the dimensions of the temple and some of the things that are taking place. One of the things we see here is that Solomon's house is bigger than the temple, quite a bit bigger. And so is that something that the writer of Kings is trying to show that maybe Solomon isn't right with the Lord or is he? I, I don't know. But certainly if he has a thousand wives, he's got to have a big house. But we get to the eighth chapter and the eighth chapter of First Kings, verse 22 through 54 is the dedicatory prayer of the temple. Now I'm going to give you an assignment in the spirit of come follow me. When you have a quiet moment, open up first Kings chapter eight and doctrine and covenant section 109 and read them hand in hand. The dedication of the first brick and mortar temple of which we know and of which we have the dedicatory prayer. And then the dedication of the first temple in our day, Kirtland. And there are some wonderful blessings and promises given. I just want to take time with one of them. Starting in verse 37 of King Solomon's dedication, he says this, If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence or blasting, mildew, locusts, or if there be caterpillar. Now, those are obviously Old Testament problems. If we modernize that and say things like, if there be in your life financial challenges or health challenges, if there's addiction among a sibling or a child or someone that you love, if you're alone or if you can't have a child or if there's a crisis of any type, if their enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be. What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man, or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands towards this house. There's the key here. And I think the doctrine being taught is God hears our prayers everywhere, but there is increased divine attention to prayers uttered in the temple. He gives us temples so that he can partner with us in those problems. There is increased divine attention when we bring our problems to the temple and symbolically lay them on the altar. Verse 39, if we do that, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways whose heart thou knowest. Those four magical words, if we lay our problems on the altar in the temple, he will hear and forgive and do and give. Now, let me jump to another story in the Old Testament. Let me go forward in time to when King Jehoshaphat is king of Israel, and he faces an army. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, the Moabites have come to attack Judah, and Jehoshaphat fears. Notice that in verse 3. 
Now, the Moabites symbolize all of the enemies in our lives that have come and surround us. And like King Jehoshaphat, sometimes we fear. But notice what he does in verse 3. He set himself to seek the Lord. Verse 4, he gathers all of Judah to ask help of the Lord. They came to seek the Lord. And where do they go in verse 5? Specifically, they go to the house of the Lord. And then Jehoshaphat quotes the dedicatory prayer. Think about what these words meant to the Israelites in their time of need. So he says in verse 6, O Lord God of our fathers, art thou not God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Art thou not our God, and who drivest out the inhabitants of this land before thy people, and gavest it to thy seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they have dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, now notice he's going to quote the dedicatory prayer. Reminding the Lord of these words, if when evil cometh upon us as the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. That's the promise. And with all my soul, I testify of the increased divine attention you get in the temple. He will hear and help. So Jehoshaphat prays what's really in his heart, and that's verse 12. And I can't tell you how many times my wife and I, as parents of 10 children, have prayed verse 12. Probably somewhere in the life of every single one of them, my wife and I have poured out our hearts to God, saying, O our God, Wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. I'm pretty sure every one of you listening has uttered that prayer to God. When we utter that prayer in his house, holding on to our covenants, It brings increased divine attention and help. He will hear and he will help. In this case, he says in verse 15, Hearken all ye Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. I testify that we make it God's battle. When we, in our covenants, go into his house and lay our problem on the altar, it then becomes his battle. The battle is not yours, but God's. He says to them in verse 17, ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Now, sometimes the Lord says, grab your swords, we're going to fight. Sometimes the Lord says, lay down and take it. Sometimes the Lord says, run. But he will be with us, and he will fight our battles for us. Let me just add one more temple to this. This is the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple and Wilford Woodruff's words. While dedicating the Salt Lake Temple, President Woodruff said the following, 
Our Father, may peace abide in all the homes of thy saints. May holy angels guard them. May they be encompassed by thine arms of love. May prosperity shine upon them, and may the tempter and the destroyer be removed far from them. Heavenly Father, when thy people are oppressed and in trouble, surrounded by difficulties or assailed by temptation, and shall turn their faces towards this thy holy house, and ask thee for deliverance, for help, for thy power to be extended in their behalf, we beseech thee to look down from thy holy habitation in mercy and tender compassion upon them and listen to their cries. That is the blessing of a temple. Increased divine attention when we bring our problems to the altar and stand there in our covenants, trying the best that we can, imperfect as we are. We partner with God, and our problems become His problems. Then we trust His solution will come. I like that. I think that's important. And with that, Next time, we are going to cover 1 Kings 17 through 19. That's going to be the confrontation that the prophet Elijah will have at Mount Carmel against the prophets of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, we will do chapter 12. It's one of the most important chapters in this whole time period where the kingdom of Israel splits. There is a split in the kingdom. And then we learn something important about the northern kingdom and why they're going to be destroyed first and the problem that they had. And so we'll talk about chapter 12 when we talk about Elijah and Ahab. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.